I don't know who chose that I'd get this one, but... Matthew 14 from verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had, had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Now, I didn't pick that passage because that's particularly suitable for grandparents, right? <laughs> Just to clear the air, all right? We're going through Matthew and we're up to chapter 14 and that's the first bit, all right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, please help us to understand your word and how it connects with our world and how it connects with us and how it helps us to understand Jesus better. Amen. One of uh, my favourite and most precious things I loved about my grandparents as a boy was to be able to sit with them and to listen to their stories about what life was like when they were kids. I loved it because they spoke of a different time to the one I was in, and yet they were this living link to the past. And because they were my grandparents, their story was also part of my story, except I didn't know it, and I was discovering it, and it was exciting to discover it. I remember my mother's mother, speaking about her dad, so my great-grandfather, Sally's great-great-grandfather. He was an amazing man. He was the head of the police station at the Rocks in Sydney. He was a boxer. He played rugby for Australia. He was an underwater explorer. He went down in one of those big diving bells in Sydney Harbour to do whatever police do down there. I don't know what they were looking for. I remember holding in my hands the field binoculars that he used in the trenches in France in the First World War. And I remember seeing the postcard that my grandmother showed me of, of him, who'd written to her, his five-year-old daughter, from the trenches. And I remember what it said in his cursive script. We have to keep our heads down because the Germans like to send bullets um, over our heads, and sometimes they make sparks on our helmets. Far out. I mean, what do you write to your five-year-old daughter from the trenches? It's a different era, but a direct connection in my family history to a time of upheaval and brutality. It's part of my story. You know, fear of evil human power is part of all of our stories. I remember 
December 31st, 1979, New Year's Eve 1979. I was a boy of nine. And I remember the vibe with Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program with the threat of global nuclear war being very real, the, the Cold War was still going on. No, none of my trusted adults could say whether we'd be round to welcome in the new year, the next new year. It was a very frightening time. And to me, the, the thought that the fate of the world could rest in the hands of a few men and that they would seriously consider nuking everyone, that was terrifying for me, even though I was in safe Australia. Right? But evil human power is terrifying. And it's around. And it exists. It's in our schoolyards, our kids deal with it. It's in our workplaces, it's in our homes, in the streets we live in. Those who use and abuse and exploit and discard. The story we've just heard is a similar story of evil human power. It's a tragic story of callous horror and indifference, chilling indifference. The main character, Herod, is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great who we met uh, at the, the, the birth narratives of Jesus, Christmas time. Uh, the wise men came to Herod the Great after Jesus' birth saying, we've come to worship the one being born the king of the Jews. Matthew says in chapter two, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And no wonder when you find out what this guy was like. He killed anyone who he thought was a potential rival. He had his two sons strangled. He had his son-in-law drowned. He had his brother exiled. He had his wife murdered. He was so insecure that when he thought that he was going to die, he ordered that the 3,000 leading citizens of Jerusalem should be taken and locked up in the amphitheater so that at the moment of his death, his soldiers would be able to run them through so that the day of his death would be a day of national mourning instead of rejoicing. Of course, he was so despised, the soldiers didn't do it. This is the Herod who, true to character, had tried to eliminate Jesus by ordering the slaughter of all the infant boys at Bethlehem, exactly in line with his character. So no wonder when the wise men came and said, we found another king who has been born, the king of the Jews, we've come to worship him. No wonder all of Jerusalem was scared. Well. The Herod in this story, Herod Antipas, is that man's son, and he is his father's son. When John the Baptist spoke out against him, against sleeping with his brother's wife, who, by the way, was also his niece, weird, um, he had had John the Baptist in prison, and to save face in front of his dinner guests had John decapitated and his head served up on a platter. I mean, that is... That is evil. It is just evil. Now, of John, Jesus said, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone who's greater than John the Baptist. According to Jesus, he was the greatest human being up to that moment. And yet, so as just to save face and not look the fool because of a ridiculous boast he made impulsively, he had John horrifically murdered and displayed. That is the evil face of human power, isn't it? 
the power that tyrannizes people, the power of insecure men, normally, who muscle themselves into positions of power and think it no different to chop off someone's head and serve it up on a platter, just like you'd chop off the head of a chicken and serve a chicken up on a platter. Why is this story here? <laughs> I mean, it happened, it's true, but Matthew's selective in what he records, so why include this story? Well, the answer is to contrast two kings. Herod, his selfish, evil use of power, with Jesus and how he uses his power. And Jesus, he is a very different king to Herod. How he uses his power is entirely different. I want to listen to what comes next, feeding the 5,000, but just to spice it up a bit, I thought we'd do something different. I'm going to ask for a very brave volunteer to try and, with Bibles closed, just tell us this story from memory. Then we'll listen to the Bible story. The reason why I'm doing this is often we think we know a story, and then, particularly if it's a familiar one, and then when we go back to and listen to it, we discover the meaning in the detail. All right? So, I am setting up someone for a fall, so it'll need to be a very brave person, but, I, you know, we're, we're friends and, you know, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> so would anyone like to be brave and for the sake of all of us, just have a go and see if they can? Stand up and just tell us the story of the feeding of the 5,000 from memory, anyone at all. Good on you, Michelle, well done. Okay, give her a round of applause. Uh, so after Jesus heard about uh, John the Baptist being killed, he wanted to spend some time alone. So he went off on a boat somewhere else. And then there were a whole pile of people from lots of different towns who followed him. And so Jesus looked around and there were all these people and there were 5,000 blokes um, along with sundry females and children. And uh, when evening approached, um, they were all still there, and Jesus um, said, oh, we've got to feed them. And the disciples said, well, uh, what with? And they had two fishes and five loaves, um, and they thought, well, this isn't enough. And Jesus um, said, well, bring it to me, and he, um, he prayed, he broke it, and he said, hand it all out. And then um, they all... Everybody got fed, lots of food, and, um, and then Jesus sent his disciples to gather any leftovers, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers, um, and everybody thought that was pretty cool. She did pretty well. Good job, Michelle. <laughs> well done. Thank you so much. Now, uh, what I want you to do is hold that recollection in your head, and then uh, Rachel's going to read us the story. And the idea is to contrast and to say, what are the details that we thought we might have known, but we didn't? <laughs> okay, all right. Thanks, Rachel. So from verse 13 to 21. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You need to give them something to eat. <laughs> 
We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Thank you so much. Did you notice the difference there? Any differences? Any idea at all? Yeah. Yeah, well done. Any other little differences in the story? Yeah. Uh, Okay, thank you. Good good eye for detail. Anything else? Yeah, Murren. He has compassion on them. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that connects with what Richard said. Any other details? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a very big contrast there between Jesus and Ant, Herod Antipas. Jesus wasn't sort of self-obsessed with his own glory. Yeah. Up the back, well done, David. Um, so Jesus travels by boat, but the people are traveling by foot, so like, they actually really try to go through the Yeah, that would have been, a, they were all cross-country runners back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, it's really interesting. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Yeah, Bev. Yeah, he. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Thank you, Bev. Jesus was thankful to God, very God honoring, and yeah. Okay, so it was mentioned Jesus' compassion on the crowds and his healing. It was very astounding, given that Jesus knows Herod has killed John. Herod's now heard reports about. Jesus and his miracles, and Herod's made the conclusion that John has come back to haunt him. Now, if ever there was a time for Jesus to feel justified in having a bit of respite by himself, (laughs) it would be now. And yet, when the crowds follow him, instead of him being irritated by this, I love this, his instinctive Reaction. His first thing that he does is to have compassion on them. Now, you or I would, have, you know, maybe we'd have thought differently. He, he's instinctively other person centered. So instinctively, when he sees people in need, he's drawn to them, rather than wanting to run away or turn away or hide himself. He, in other words, feels people's need. And then he uses his power from heaven to help people. Isn't that amazing? The loaves of the fishes, there's no mention of the little boy here, just the quantity, five loaves, two fish. And the point is, it's, it's so small, it's so meagre. These aren't big loaves, you know, these would be tiny little things. The number of people, 5,000 men besides women and children, which allows commentators to estimate maybe between fifteen and 20,000 people there, perhaps. Absolutely staggering. Uh, 
And then the impact, they, were all ate, they all ate and were satisfied, and they had left, left over besides, 12 basketfuls left over. This is a staggering miracle of creation. It is a miracle of provision. What's the point? Now, uh, theologians have tried to tie this back to what happened in the Old Testament. You know, is there a connection between uh, the people of God being fed with manna in the desert in the time of Moses? Is it saying Jesus is a greater Moses? Um, because just as the people were fed in the time of Moses with manna in the desert, Jesus feeds a multitude here. Look, it's, there are echoes there, but it doesn't quite fit. These people are sitting down on grass. It's not the desert. They're not going on a big journey somewhere um, from one land to another. There are echoes there, but it's hard to squeeze that story into this one. The point seems to come out in the contrast with how Jesus treats people and how Herod treats people. Herod shows the evil face of human power, but in Jesus, what do you see? You see the overflowing goodness of God. What a contrast. Instinctively, Herod thinks only about himself. He thinks about how to save face, no matter what the cost. It doesn't matter if he's a little bit distressed. doesn't matter. I'll give the order, chop John's head off, serve it up on a platter. Instinctively, Christ operates out of compassion for others, even at a cost to himself. Herod does evil, Jesus does what is right. He is so much better a king, isn't he? In fact, he is what everyone looks for in a leader but can't find because everyone else falls short, don't we? And that is why he is worth choosing. Jesus not only heals those who are sick, he satisfies them with bread until they are full and then there's leftovers. What a contrast, two platters, right? Picturing the differences between the evil face of human power, what that king brings us and what Jesus brings us. On this platter, the silver platter, is the severed head of John the Baptist. That's the evil face of human power, it's horrific. This is the face of all human power left unchecked, in fact. In Australia, we think, well, that doesn't happen here. No, no, of course not. Our governments are generally good, they are. But of course, we have laws to protect us and we are able to vote people in and out. But why do we have laws and why do we have a democratic system where we can vote people in and out? Precisely because we know people need protecting from corrupt leaders because this is what human power without checks in place goes to. Herod is not the only ruler in history to have led like this. And the reason goes to the innate depravity of the human heart. What's, what's the saying? You know it. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Around the world there are people who are ruling exactly like Herod. And it may be that you, in a very small way, have felt and faced the ugly side of human power in your life. Left unchecked, without laws in place, without the ability to call someone to account, it becomes evil. And the consequences become something of horror. But Jesus is not like that because contrast the first picture, this platter, with the next. 
and that is the basket. One of 12 baskets, in fact, brimming over with the bread that's been left after everyone has been satisfied. And the point is not that no follower of Jesus has ever suffered, dis, have suffered hunger or discomfort following him. That's not the point. The point is the character of the king and his instinctive disposition towards us being one of for our good, not for evil. So here are two platters, and weighing up those two pictures, which king would you choose, of course? Which kingdom would you like to be part of? There is a clear choice, actually, that Matthew's putting in front of us, and there is a clear answer, isn't there? Although maybe you have your doubts. In our final story, we meet Peter, a disciple who had his doubts, and then Jesus asking, why did you doubt? Jesus understands something about himself and who he is to us that Peter had not properly grasped even though Peter was a follower of Jesus and Jesus wants us to grasp it and now we get to listen up and I think Joel, the third in the Wunki dynasty, oh, sorry, the Voigt dynasty, <laughs> that's right, is gonna bring us the reading, thanks Joel. Uh, this is from Matthew 14, 22 to 36. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick who touched the edge of his, ooh, and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all, all who touched it were healed. Good job, Joel. Okay, what a great story, isn't it? Not only do we have Jesus walking on water, what on earth is that about? We have the disciples freaked out. They mistake Jesus for a spectre, a ghost. This taps into our fears about supernatural stuff. Then we have Peter basically offering to step out on the water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm. What on earth was he thinking? Then we have Peter walking on the water. What does that mean? And then we have Peter doubting and sinking, and then we have Jesus reaching out and saving him, and then we have Jesus saying, why did you doubt? And we think, isn't it obvious? <laughs> Except Jesus is saying, no, it's not. 
And then we have the disciples worshiping Jesus and Jesus lets them. This story has its questions, but, but the point about Jesus is clear. Despite our doubts about whether Jesus is there for us, we need not doubt. We need not fear. Jesus is the king of creation. He is the powerful son of God. He is there to remove our fears. Right from the outset, Jesus uses his power for the sake of his disciples. The story starts with this word, immediately. He immediately makes his disciples get into the boat. Now, that word made is the same word for forced or compelled. He's just fed the 5,000 straight away. He forces his disciples to get into the boat. And we say, why does he do that? Now, Matthew doesn't record this detail, but in John's account, he says, after the crowd had been fed, the crowd tried to make him king by force. And so Jesus withdrew. Matthew adds the detail that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and Jesus alone dismissed the crowd. Putting them together, I think Jesus is acting to protect his disciples. The crowd are getting hard to handle. They want to make Jesus king by force. Jesus immediately gets his disciples out of harm's way on the lake while he deals with the crowd. You get in the boat, I'll deal with it. Now, if that sounds a stretch, um, three times <laughs> we're told that Jesus does something immediately. And on each time, his instinctive response is for the sake of his disciples. So next one. When the disciples have been now rowing across the lake, lake for nine hours, exhausting, they are buffeted by the wind and the waves. They are strung out. They are fearful. It's at the darkest time of the night. It's just before dawn. It's the time they are most likely to be spooked. And then they see this spectre. Can you imagine coming across the waves towards them, and they're not imagining it. <laughs> it's real. What can they conclude? They think it's a ghost. They cry out in fear. And so verse 27, immediately Jesus says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then when Peter walks, he doubts, he sinks and cries out, verse 31, Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and catches him each time, one, two, three, his immediate instinctive response is for the sake of his disciples. He has power, but can you see he uses it for his disciples' sake. Now, what else? Jesus walking on water. What does that show? It shows himself as the divine son of God, the king of creation. Clearly, he's coming as king over the waves. He's ruling over them. He's the king of creation. Because who else could walk on the water? Job chapter nine, verse eight, God alone treads the waves of the sea. And then when he says, take courage, it is I, those words, it is I, literally, if you translate them, they become God's name, I am. In the Old Testament, this was God's literal name. In the way Jesus reassures his disciples, he uses God's personal name for himself. And then the clincher about Jesus being the divine son of God here is that both that, you know, we see both Jesus and the disciples thinking he's God because when he gets into the boat, they worship him. Now, from the disciples' point of view, worship is something you only give God. And they do it. And from Jesus' point of view, he lets them. If Jesus was just a prophet of God, a messenger of God, but not God himself, 
If he was a genuine prophet, at this point, when he was being worshipped, he would have put out his hand to stop them, like the angel does to John in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. John had been shown amazing things. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So if Jesus was a prophet and not God, he would have stopped the disciples, but he let them. So Jesus walking on water shows he's the divine son of God. He's the Lord of creation. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, hang on just a cotton pick a minute, because you're saying that Jesus walking on water shows that he was divine, but Peter walked on the water, and he's not divine. He's just a man. So what's Peter's walking on the water about? And what planet was Peter on where he asked Jesus to ask him out onto the lake? I mean, what was he thinking? <laughs> okay, and we're not told what Peter was thinking, but it fits with Peter. He's impulsive. He's big-hearted. He's inclined to believe. Now, Peter had been there when Jesus had calmed the storm earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. Um, he spoke to the wind and the waves, with, and he calmed them with a word as if he was like their king, and the wind and the waves were his subjects. And now he's seeing Jesus walking on these chaotic waters. He is clearly in authority over them. He is ruling over them. Who knows what Peter was thinking? Most likely he's so astounded to see Jesus. He wants to come to him, and he does. And in doing so, maybe without knowing it, Peter does something that teaches us that we can draw a lesson from. Usually, if you've heard sermons on this, the application of this story goes along the lines of this. Trust in Jesus through the storms of life and he'll enable you to stand. Now, I think the lesson with respect is bigger than that. With eyes on Jesus, through faith in Jesus, Peter is doing something he would normally never do. He is walking on water. He also is ruling the seas. And if you know your Bibles, this does take us back to God's purpose for us in Genesis chapter one, where God creates mankind and then says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the, in the air, etc." Well, this is that, but even more. Uh, Peter is fulfilling his creation mandate like never before. God never said, let them rule over the seas as well, but here is Peter doing this. And he can only do it through Jesus when his eyes are on him. So what's this saying? My guess, I might be wrong, but my guess is that through Jesus, it's saying we can become the people that God made us to be. He's the key. You take your struggle with sin. Sometimes you can think it's all too hard. You can think I'm a failure. Everyone else succeeds, I don't. Well, you can draw courage from and take heart from Peter's walking on the water. It's not Peter who's impressive here. It's Jesus who Peter was looking at who's impressive, who enables Peter to walk on the water. So in our struggle with sin, our eyes need to be on Jesus. Years after this event, Peter would write this in his second letter, that God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness through our knowledge of him who called us. Now, who called Peter? 
Jesus. He called Peter to come and join him, ruling the creation, and he enabled him to do it. What does it mean? It means next time you're tempted, instead of focusing on your weakness, instead of focusing on your dismal track record, focus instead upon Jesus. Eyes on him, faith in him, call out to him, right? And pray to him to help you stand firm. And guess what? He will do it. He will do it. We can learn about seeing Jesus through Peter's faith. But then, of course, Peter doubted. And again, this teaches us. Because here is, if you like, the gospel in a moment. Peter takes his eyes off Jesus. He sees the wind. He becomes afraid. He begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus does instinctively, immediately, he reaches out his hand and he catches him. That is the gospel in an action. You know, when we doubt, when we take our eyes off Jesus, when we despair because we ourselves are so weak, guess what? When we cry out to Jesus, Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and he catches us and he saves us. Do you know the next time in Matthew's gospel when Jesus reaches out his hand? It's on the cross. It's when he stretches out his hands, actually, to catch us. He saves us from the consequences of our actions. He saves us from sinking to the depths like Jonah, who turned his back on the Lord. Well, that's when Jesus would catch Peter, big-hearted, likable, impulsive, weak, sinful Peter, who boasted, I'll never deny you, but then denied him three times before the night was out. He paid for Peter's failure. He bore the cost of all of our failures, all of our doubts. But then after catching Peter, he said, you have little faith. And he says, why did you doubt? And we think, well, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, maybe Peter, you know, he had that moment of blinding clarity that comes after you do something impulsive and you look around and go, well, golly, I've never been here before, you know. No, Jesus says, why did you doubt? You shouldn't have, in other words. It's the same question he already asked them back in the boat in chapter eight when he quietened the wind and the waves. It's the same question he asks us. Why do you doubt? He's clearly thinking that we shouldn't, that we needn't. Now, why needn't we doubt? Well, for the same reason the disciples should have learnt last time they were caught in the storm on the lake. Because yes, of course, he is the powerful son of God, but here's the point. He's the powerful son of God who uses his power for others to save us. That is why we need not doubt. Other rulers use their power for different ends, not Jesus, not Jesus. So when you know not only his power, but his character, his inclination towards you, you need not doubt. There's no room for it. Three stories in one chapter, three stories about removing fear. The first shows us the face of evil human power. It's tyrannical, it's horrific, it's evil. Herod's not the first, not the last to show that. This capacity is within us all and it keeps coming out. It shows itself to every generation and living under this is, makes us afraid. Jesus comes to remove the fear. He is a king of a different order. He is sent from God 
and his instinctive, consistent response is to do people good. The feeding of the crowd shows the overflowing goodness of Christ. The third story shows us Jesus as the Son of God, the King we need not doubt. In him, we can become the people God created us to be. So you see what our response needs to be, don't you? It's to not doubt. <laughs> it's very simple. It's to trust in Jesus. Now, whether you're facing change or challenge, finishing year 12 with your SACE exams in front of you, and you think my whole future depends on my performance in a few hours. <laughs> Rubbish, just talk to anyone who's older. Whether you're stuck in this cycle of juggling kids and work and church and trying to squeeze in a little bit of social life and fun, and then there's the gardening and you know, there's uh, family issues and you know. Whether you're living in fear of a bully who thinks only of themselves, whether you're a grandparent, wants to connect, doesn't quite know how, fearful of the future for your grandkids. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Trust in him. And if you are weak, and if you, are, if you find yourself falling, you call out to him, because he's there for you, and he will catch you, and his instinctive reaction is to do you good. It's a great thing in his kingdom. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus, and thank you for this expose on his power and his character. And God, we are weak. We, we know we are like Peter. Uh, we want to be Pete like Peter at his best, but we're also like Peter at his worst. Father, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the wonderful King, the good King. In your name we pray. Amen.